it seems like this is like 2020 the remix you know <laughs> it's like the deluxe version yeah oh. losing a loved one right now it just sucks like it's just awful because you can't assemble as a family like normal that's lame <laughs> covid is lame <laughs> you heard it here first Welcome to the Viola-centric podcast. We are two curious violists exploring the art of connection through conversations with each other and our friends. I'm Stephanie Knutson. And I'm Liz O'Hara Starr. And we're both professional freelance musicians living in the DC metro area. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there. Yeah. Yeah. This past week was crazy hard. It sucked. Yeah. This week sucked. Yeah. Between what happened on Wednesday and dealing with that. And then I guess I told you that my grandmother had, she had some kind of episode on Wednesday night and then she became nonverbal. And um, I just started sending, I was sending videos, just pieces of me. I was just playing pieces of music. In fact, I realized that you can find just about any tune you want because my grandmother loved musicals. Mm-hmm. So I would just pull up a song, play it, record it on video, send it over, Uh then pull up another song, send it on video. And I thought that's probably was the extent of communication I was going to get with her. And then on Friday morning, my aunt said that she was kind of alert and I got to FaceTime and play for her live and then uh, visit with her for a little bit. And she she had her eyes closed and she was nonverbal, but she was there Mm -hmm. and responsive, just without words, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that was really special that I got to do that. And yeah, and then yesterday, you know, she she passed, so. It's hard. She was 90 years old. She had an epic life. My dad is one of 15 kids, which is insane. <laughs> there was just this innate, like, love and patience and kindness Everyone loved her. She she always had friends. She was always inviting people over and feeding them. And she just had that giving heart and um, just really special. And I, I was very lucky because they lived in Virginia Beach for so long. They lived in Virginia Beach for like 20 years. So for the first 10 years I lived here in D.C., I just got in the car. I drove down. I spent a weekend there randomly and then, you know, walk in the back door and say, hey, what's up, and hang out all weekend. And I had this very cool relationship with my grandparents as an adult that I don't think many people experience where, yes, they were my grandparents and I saw them like that, but they were, we were also kind of friends Mm. and really, really close. And it was hard when my grandpa died and it was a big change because then my grandma moved to Dallas. Mm. I got to see her once down there. Wish I could have gotten back down, really do. But it's hard to feel regret, really, because I had such a great relationship with them. And this is very, very special and formative part of my life. Mm -hmm. With respect to what's going on nationally, I hope we're just like, it's like the last fight, you know, the last fight of the worst year ever. Mm -hmm. And then things will start to get better. (laughs) Let's hope so. One can only hope because this has been dark. Yes. This week has been dark. That's the right word. And our listeners, I'm sure you're experiencing the same things that Liz and I are, just like complete helplessness and not surprise. 
I don't feel surprised that this is happening. Nope. I mean, anyone who's been paying attention could have seen this in a worst case scenario presenting itself. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not surprising, but it's just depressing that it has come to this and we will get through it. Yeah. And Aaron and I, my husband and I have just been talking about how surreal it is to be living through what's going to be in history books in the future, you know? Like we grew up learning about Watergate and about the Vietnam War and about assassinations that happened, you know, in the 60s. And you think of it as history and you don't <laughs> like have the bandwidth to comprehend that this is going to be taught in history books in the future. Like our grandkids are going to be learning about this. And it's just so surreal that these crazy things are happening and how big they are, you know, in the moment. Yes. A friend of mine just said the other day, like you just said, that's so good. We're literally living through history, but we're tired of living through it. Could we just get a break? Like we get it, you know, once in a century pandemic, national political crisis, you know, we get it. But can we just have a break? <laughs> can somebody give us a reprieve from that? It's a heavy, it's a heavy load to bear, actually, for a people. Yeah, well, it's trippy also to know that these problems have been simmering and that they are just coming up to the surface now. Yes. So they've been there. And we have been privileged, literally privileged, to be able to ignore them. Yes. Even in our situation. And just pretend like they don't exist. And this has been a catalyst, hopefully for change, at least awareness. Absolutely. It's hard to know how we're, we come back together. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the solution to that is. But I know that in my own personal life, I'm trying to hear both sides. I'm trying to leave myself open because I think the worst thing we can do is for this to be the last straw and to shut people out. I agree. It's been another casualty of the COVID era is that you're able to put yourself in this bubble yeah. even more than before. You're not seeing people in person. You don't know who that person is on the other side of the chat or the Facebook post. Yes. It's easy to dehumanize people. And you cannot form a connection with someone who is dehumanized in your eyes. No. No, you can't. Have you watched The Social Dilemma? No, it's on my list in Netflix. Me too. Okay. Me too. I have only heard about it. So maybe, maybe we should both watch it. Watch party. And then we can chat about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we'll do like a... A book report. So everybody, everybody watch The Social Dilemma. Yep. And in one month, we will talk about it. We'll talk about it. On our podcast. And you can email us. Yes, email us. Maybe we'll have like a segment of an episode where we, you know, it's like a book club. Or movie club. Yeah. A movie club. Love it. Yeah. And actually, I've seen the person who made the film talk. There's this algorithm or multiple algorithms that literally just continue to funnel more things that interest you as a person and filter out anything else. So every single human being that is active on social media has their own reality, separate from everybody else's reality. Uh -huh. And that is continuing to separate us as human beings. And so uh, is the suggestion to get rid of social media? No, but there are some serious things to consider about what it's doing to us as a society and the balance between, I think for me, it's about 
weighing the balance toward personal, interpersonal connection, mm-hmm. communicating with my friends and family by phone, by text, by video chat, trying to see them in person if it's possible. Those are the real connections. There is no real connection on social media. It's not real. Mm-mm. We think it's real, but it's not. <laughs> and understanding how to separate between those two things, I think, is a, is a real challenge that we have to face if we're going to move forward. Yeah. New, new resolutions. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, soon Chris is going to be joining us. I know. So soon. And... I'm so excited to talk with him. So Chris Jacoby, he's a violin maker. Well, he makes all of the violin family instruments, and he's a restorer of fine stringed instruments. And he heads the workshop at Potter Violins, which is in Bethesda, Maryland. Chris is a very widely respected uh, luthier and maker, and we are just thrilled to bring him on here today. He's he got his own podcast, actually. He's got a podcast about violin making. It's called the OMO podcast, O-M-O. Um, he's just the nicest guy you'll ever, ever talk to. Very soft-spoken, but man, does he know all about violin. And I'm just really excited about all the stories that we're going to hear from Chris. Me too. He's lived a life and he's just a, just such a personable, funny guy. Yeah, I'm really excited too. This is the first time we're going to have a guest that I actually haven't met before. You've never met Chris? I don't think I've officially met Chris. So I'm really excited to meet him like this. Yay! And we're both Potter's girls. We we both take our instruments to be serviced at Potter's. In fact, Stephanie has a, a pretty epic story to tell <laughs> about getting some work done on her viola, which I will save for our conversation with Chris. So I'm excited to meet him and hear his stories. I think it's going to be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And to hear your story too. <laughs> to be continued. Don't change that channel. <laughs> Hi, Chris. Hi. How's it going, Liz? Welcome. Hi, Stephanie. It's nice to meet you. Yeah, I know. I I said hello to you when you were getting work done by Rob, and I never stopped and figured out that you were the same Liz. When Stephanie told me she was doing this with Liz, I know another Liz who's a violist, and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh. (laughs) You had another Liz in your mind. Who would that be? I'm sorry. It's okay. No, it's all right. I get it. It's a very common name. (laughs) This is really exciting. This is uh, your third episode now? Yeah. Yes. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. It's our pleasure. So we know that you're a pro at this because you have your own podcast. Yeah, I do OMO, (laughs) which is the romance and reality of violin making with Rosie DeLoach and Jerry Lynn. And it's been a lot of fun. We're starting our third season after a sanity break uh, in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, We all have kids, and it was getting a little overwhelming to show up every week, you know, to record. But it's such a nice outlet. Yeah. It's nice to have something apart from, you know, work and family that fulfills. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been really fun for us to figure out how to do it and just just to have conversations on a regular basis. It's just been awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. I know Chris through Potters, and he's worked on my viola through it all which we'll get into a little bit later. But 
Chris, I'm just interested to know how you got into violin making and how that interest was sparked for you. Yeah, well, I was a, I played Suzuki as a little kid in Cincinnati, and I got my grandfather's violin as a small child, and that gave me sort of a nice connection to the the sort of long frame of connection that musicians and their instruments keep, mm-hmm. and these these trees of who your teacher was and who your teacher's teacher was. And the fact that those same aspects were mirrored with the people who had made these instruments that outlive us by many centuries, if they're taken care of, was always really interesting to me. And after high school, I tried to go to college a few times. <laughs> and I was in the Bay Area playing my violin on the street. A lot of it's still book seven and eight Suzuki stuck with me, you know, and gigging with bands and stuff. And uh, I just sort of naturally found my way. Somebody gave me an instrument to fix and I dishonored it terribly and did terrible things to it, trying to figure out what to do. Oh, no. Um, and found the Violin Making School of America in Salt Lake City, and that was 20 years ago. And I, I called my parents and said, Damn, I'm going back to college, but it's to make violins. And he's like, Ha ha, okay, okay, have fun. <laughs> it just keeps getting harder is the wrong word, but it keeps getting more challenging. And the breadth of it keeps getting more interesting. And the the more able I am restoring, making, getting instruments to their potential, which is really my favorite thing to do, the more stuff there is to play with and understand. Yeah, it's like the more the more that you know, the more there is to know. Like there, you can just get more into mm-hmm. all the details, I imagine. Totally. But yeah, so you're also almost primarily a maker of violins and violin family instruments. Yeah. So how does that fit in? The two go together pretty well. Depends on whether you want to be prolific or not. But the more I see nice instruments um, and handle them and informed are informed, I am informed by them, the better my instruments become that I make. And there was five years before I accepted the position at Potter's when I exclusively made new instruments. I didn't take repairs, even if I wanted to, because bills were coming, you know. And I produced between 15 and 20 instruments a year. Wow. And took them to shops and, and sold them to, to players. And that was that was pretty harrowing, actually. It was it was a lot. And there was a long period of time when I thought that that was my job. I was, I was here on earth just to make instruments and the most instruments possible. Um, and I'm much happier sizing a kid for a rental occasionally and having some community and uh, being in a city like D.C. where the, the level of player is so high. Mm-hmm. I think that those of you in the surrounding area, you two guys gig for a living, you know, mm-hmm. yep. you get a little bit immune to it. Y'all are heavy. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're only as strong as our, the people we, who support us. And I know I would be not, nowhere if I didn't have somebody to turn to when I needed something for my instrument. With a sound post setter. Yes. Yeah. With that thing, that little <laughs> hammer thing. <laughs> <laughs> that terrifies everyone. It's like, all right, I'm going to fix this. Whack! <laughs> Sit there like, okay, all right, all right. It's like the the equivalent of like your your TV with the antenna isn't working properly, so you're like hit it a couple times, whack, 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 yes. for it to come back into. We just dated ourselves. My kids don't know what the hell a TV antenna is. <laughs> it's important that you trust someone with your instrument, yeah, and that you trust someone enough that 
when you describe how you want something to sound or they listen to you play and they hear how you sound, that they can work with you. And that relationship takes a long time. I think the right relationship takes a while to find. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. There's a vocabulary and searching for a shared vocabulary is something that's been attempted in a few different circles of violin makers and musicians I've been together with. But I mean, when I was in violin making school and had one very small daughter, I bartended at night. And I think that some of the same psychiatrist five cent, you know, sign over your head like peanuts that went on at bartending works just as well. The same people skills for getting to a place where you have a rapport with someone. I think uh, the terms that are most useful to me when I'm adjusting someone's instrument are whether it's feeling tight or slack and whether it's feeling warm or bright. And then everybody either uses car words or food words. So... Really? Like what? So Stephanie, I don't remember you doing this, but Stephanie would come in and say, it's just too caramel. I'm looking for a salted <laughs> milk chocolate. You know, it's on like one note on the G string. And <laughs> that would be a very Stephanie thing to say. That resonates heavily <laughs> with me. <laughs> so just uh, having a rapport with someone so that you can see through to what your terms mean with the the musician's terms. And my experience with luthiers as a young man was that I felt unimportant to them. I felt like I was wasting their time and something that happens a lot. When somebody comes in with their instrument that they formed a life commitment to and things aren't going right, they're in a panic. They're emotionally disturbed by it. They have a show coming up. Your self-worth is sitting in that chair with you. So you either take a bow with no rosin on it or it's gotta work. And I felt like luthiers thought I was being crazy when I was having trouble. And the best advice I ever got from a mentor was, the musician isn't crazy, even if they're batshit. Oh, sorry, can I say that on viola-centric? Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. You can say it. <laughs> yes, yes, you can. <laughs> even if they are absolutely nuts, they're not crazy. They're trying to find a way to get you to help them. So you got to just take it easy and, and work with them. And then people come back instead of going to the next shop, you know? Yeah, that totally resonates with me. I mean, everything, you could see Liz and I were like full body nodding the whole time. We're into the full body nod. <laughs> when you go in and you try and describe something that is so abstract as sound, yeah. it often, you feel like you're crazy. Mm -hmm. You're like, I don't know if I'm crazy, but here's what I'm hearing do you hear it? You know, I feel like I was always asking you, like, do you hear what I'm thinking? <laughs> do you hear what I'm hearing? And the real question is, am I just screwing up? Or can't? is it something that we can get to with the instrument? And the answer is almost always yes to the latter. It's, uh, it's rarely that a professional has suddenly forgotten how to weight their left arm and hold their bow, you know? Oh, that's so reassuring to hear. It really is. I'm so curious to know what Rob would say about that. Do I talk about my viola like a car or food? <laughs> and you, you've been working with Rob Wood. He's uh, he's a rock star. Yeah. He's one of my favorite humans. Oh, my uh, God. He's been awesome. He's He yeah. is just awesome. It's been a couple of years now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's been great. I started working with him. I just saw when he was at the school, which I went to as well, him taking his kids out rock climbing and skateboarding. And th there's something about that proactive joy that uh that i i knew that we'd get along so uh, i started having him come out and help me build my instruments and i was so pleased when he came out to potters to make it a place where 
we get less and less of, and there's nothing wrong with this. There are fine, fine luthiers in New York, but people will come in and go, just give me the strings. I have to drive it to Manhattan to have my luthier put it on. And there's no need for that. You know, there's enough talent in the area that's just about making people feel safe with their, their little wooden babies. Well, it's very clear that you're cultivating that environment back there. And that's just awesome. Thanks. This sort of segues into something that we were curious about, which is what it's like back there in that room you guys are in <laughs> when you're all there together making instruments and working on them. Well, Liz, we all have our, our ties done up to the Adam's apple. <laughs> with a, It's a double Windsor knot. Does seem quite serious. Uh, that's not true. I've been behind the veil a couple times. Somebody put Rimsky Korsakoff on the other day and I put my foot down. <laughs> it's pretty silly back there. And, you know, it's, it's a friendly environment. Yeah, it's gotten pretty bad now that we don't have customers in the building because my voice carries like a, like a Muppet, like a, like a duck horn. And uh, I get in trouble with Dalton for, for cracking jokes. Nothing in a, well, nothing too inappropriate, just it's constant, you know? But now that there's nobody in the building, yeah, we, we pretty much have a whose line is it anyway thing going on. <laughs> Working at Potter's is, is, as Dalton puts it, like drinking from a fire hose. It, it's an intense amount of work and it, that's a big building. There's a lot of different departments. So um, as long as we stay laughing and keep our knives sharp, it's it's better. Mm -hmm. yeah. Have you had an influx of work? I, I got the impression when I saw Rob the last time, and he did something pretty massive with my instrument last time I was in, that all of us who are professionals around here are like, oh, we're not working. Let's take our instruments in and get these massive things done. <laughs> yeah. And the nice thing is that it's been nicer instruments with more serious repairs. Because in the downtime where you don't have the fear of a playing in period coming when you have shows coming up, people are more willing as, as you were to go, okay, I'll, I'll finally take care of that, that ticking time bomb, that rib that's bulging and has been about to break. So it's been a lot of people coming in to have the top taken off to have something repaired. And then you discover everything else that should be taken care of so that you can give it back to a professional with the confidence that it's not going to, you know, crap out on. Yeah. Speaking of repairs, Stephanie had that experience with you big time. Stephanie went swimming <laughs> one night on her way back from Wolf Trap and she took her viola <laughs> with her. Yeah. You know, our listeners don't know the River Fiddle story. Merviola. She tried to brand it Merviola and I just steamrolled her. I'm sorry. That's okay. It is what it is. Yeah. It's living its own life now. Uh, it was the Merviola for Halloween this year. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Will you tell us what happened? Yeah. So like you mentioned, I was working at Wolf Trap. We had just wrapped Gounod's Romeo and Juliet and it had actually been raining for like a week straight. This day was no different. It was pouring. And I actually remember before I went to the performance, I remember putting on my raincoat and putting on my waterproof hunter boots <laughs> because I was like, I'm not ruining my dress shoes. Of course not. In this mess. And because of the traffic situation that's normally the case, I put on my GPS and I just said, take me home. And so I went this one way and I came up over a hill and there I saw police lights and they had blocked off that road. And so I turned around and my GPS rerouted me. I went down this other road and there's no streetlights either. And I came up over a hill and 
almost immediately I was in water. And at first I thought that it was a puddle. You know how you can like kind of go through a puddle. You'll come back out of it. Yeah, exactly. And you like feel your steering go a little funny, but you just have the faith that in a minute it'll be over and you'll be able to control. Well, I could not control my steering anymore. And my car just started to just float and drift. And I could see where the road emerged from the water that there was a fire truck with its lights on and they had already shut down the road coming the other way. And so I knew that I was not going to be able to drive out of this just based on the way that my car was floating. And I dialed 911. She's like, so what's happening right now? And I said, well, my car is drifting and I hear water coming into my car. And she said, you need to climb out of your car. And so I rolled down the driver's window. I had my phone in one hand and I just climbed out and I stood on the edge of the window. And at this point, my car had drifted off the road. There was a bridge at the bottom that I, I didn't know at the time, but my car had drifted into off the bridge and into the river. And it's just like in a cartoon where you see the ship sinking and the back end is up in the air. And it's just like sinking down like this. And you're standing on the window as it's... I'm standing uh, on the window. Oh my God. I've got the phone in one hand and I'm like looking around for something to grab onto. And luckily there was a tree that my car was floating towards. So I was like, if I time this right, I can grab onto the tree with this hand. Well, I did that. I dropped my phone and it is lost forever to me, but that's okay. <laughs> I grabbed on to the, the tree with both hands and I just swung around. I jammed my foot into the first opening that I could feel. And at this point, I was like half in the water from the hips down in the water. And I literally watched my car. I watched the headlights sink down into the river wow. underneath me. And eventually they went out. And then I was... You just... have so much clarity about this. Well, I played it over and over yeah. quite a few times in my my brain. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's something you don't forget. I, I remember just seeing the lights. I was like, I wonder how long those are going to stay on. <laughs> and eventually they, they went out. Wow. And then I think the realization hit where I was like, my car is under the water. My viola is under the water. Mm-hmm. My viola has sunk to the bottom of the river. Yeah. And... To make a long story short, I just, I, I yelled, I screamed. Luckily, I learned later that the firefighters had seen my car go into the river. So immediately they called to get the boats to rescue me. Well, I found out later that it took three different boats because it, it was a river and the current was very, very strong. And they couldn't get boats that with motors strong enough to get out to me. To go up into where the, yeah. And actually the one that they actually got to me, they had a rope and they would like literally lasso a tree, tether themselves to the tree, pull themselves to the tree, and then go to the next tree in the same manner in a zigzag way to get back to me. So we ended up, they ended up getting me. I was spent about 90 minutes in the tree and then they took me by ambulance to the hospital. And I think I was just in shock and Aaron came to get me at the hospital later and he said my lips were blue. Mm. So they gave me like warm fluids to kind of, but it was in the summertime. Yeah. You know, it could have been so much worse. Yeah. Yeah. But seriously, 
badass woman (laughs) clinging to this tree in a current that took three boats to figure out how to get to you. Yeah. Just, it was like instinct. You just made it happen. And that's incredible. It's incredible. That story is, that is not the first time I've heard that story, but it is still incredible. And I'm so, I'm so glad that you... I'm so glad that you made it out the way you did. And yeah, you can fix a viola. Yeah. Right. Yeah. As heartbreaking as that would be to watch it go. You know, I gave it that one thought, but I did not dwell on it. I was more worried about my kids. Yeah. You know, my husband making it out, hanging on long enough so they could get to me and, um, and get me home. Yeah. I knew there'd be another viola in my life. And luckily, I didn't have to make that that new decision. 24 hours after that, or like 36 hours, so a couple days, the water had receded enough. It was still raining, but the water had receded enough where you could actually see the tail end of the car. And Aaron and I went, and he put on his water shoes and swim trunks, and he <laughs> waited... <laughs> This is like landslide water. It's so muddy and full of old spring steel. Gross. It was gross. It smelled awful. And he went out there, my hero, and he he opened up the car door and he floated. It literally the case floated out. Oh my god. He floated it out and he drug it. It was so waterlogged. It must have weighed like fifty to seventy five pounds. It was so heavy. And he pulled it to shore and we unzipped it and opened the case. And it was. And she took photos and videos in these moments, Liz. Yeah. I got these, like, I got to live through the the deep caustic shock with her. Of, oh. <laughs> yeah. And as a luthier, you're probably looking at like, oh, my God, the carnage. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So we, we poured the water out of the case. And I have video of that, too. We'll repost all these videos so you can relive the harrowing experience with uh, with us so what did what did jim send to you chris it was so the first and i'm paraphrasing i haven't looked at it but the first text didn't let me know that you were okay oh Oh my god (laughs) it's just like (laughs) dude stephanie went into the river her viola is lost the viola's gone gone. yeah (laughs) so is stephanie So he told me that you were okay and you were, and I understand completely, but you were funny in the next few days. And when we first, first talked about it and when you first came to the shop with the viola, because anybody who expressed any concern about you, you just brushed them right off. That's, that's very Stephanie. You were just done. You were taking care of business and it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in a tree for for three hours. Um, Are the bows going to be okay? And uh, the, actually, that was the crazy thing. And Stephanie has nice bows. Both of those bows, we I, I made a box first to dehumidify the instrument in the bows. Mm-hmm. And it consisted of very high-tech things like cat litter. <laughs> because uh, cat litter exchanges moisture and draws it from the air. And then some, some gel material, like go into some of the humidifiers for cases. Arion uses it. Uh, it'll exchange uh, water with the air to keep things at a certain temperature. So we had to dry all this stuff out, but not too fast, or it will turn into just like green stick splinters. Mm. All the parts of an instrument were built under great tension and then put under adverse tension because good sound 
is creating a delicate system which is strapped right at the point of breaking hmm. and then it produces sound which will cut through an orchestra hmm. so when you waterlog that it all wants to spring back into its original apposite shapes stephanie brought me a six pound viola and when it was all done with fittings it was just under two pounds <gasps> Wow. And she was not kidding about the stink. Oh, man. <laughs> Have you ever had to clean a sump out? My dad used to make me clean the sump out <laughs> when he caught me, like, smoking cigarettes as a teenager. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> oh, the Merviola, the Merviola smelled like the bottom of a compost heap. And when, when rural viola, rural viola, when rural Virginia uh, floods down into the river, there are leach fields, there's all sorts of heavy metals, whatever is in the soil. And I had the, the, the good fortune that I have friends in the industry who have been in this situation before. Somebody was washed off Highway 1 headed towards, uh, like, by San Luis Obispo. Their car was washed off the side of the freeway and into the water oh. with a, a 1720s Stradivari violin in it. Oh, my God. And it was found washed up is the cool thing. Wow. They didn't go out and get it. Like, somebody who was beachcombing after the storm found the, the case, uh, and it made its way to the Weishar shop in Los Angeles. And they gave me some very good, very time-consuming advice. And uh, when you're working on an instrument of the quality of Stephanie's or, God forbid, Antonio Stradivari, <laughs> you just do the extra work. So the first thing was to dehumidify it carefully. And it took less time than I was thinking it might because we're in a southern town, even if it doesn't feel like it. So after about five weeks, the relative humidity of the wood was down enough with a meter that I started to build counter forms for the linings and ribs. So the shape of each rib, the ribs are the side of the instrument for anyone listening, had to be supported from either side with a block of wood which kept it in its original shape as I took it out of the dehumidifying chamber and let it freak out do what it would in the air and this was the step that taught me why i should be as careful with my wood selection after 140 something instruments working on your viola as my teachers told me i should because the wood where the grain was not chosen carefully quartered and straight those ribs and the back kept going into whatever shape it wanted for seven months over and over. I know you struggled with that for a long time. I couldn't get the back back to a shape where it would fit because they'd use two cool pieces of wood and the, there was grain run out. Like the topography when you look down on a mountain and it has the, the concentric circles as it gets further and further out, that means that it came out of the tree sideways instead of straight up and down. And so those parts of the the viola even after a hundred years were like oh i'm a tree i'm i'm gonna do whatever i want <laughs> so i spent months uh with stephanie's ribs and viola back and they were fully dry at this point pressing them back to shape with uh hot bags of sand and silk and uh with just hammerheads for weight as the weather changed and once they had been through almost a full year of humidity cycles in a normal year of seasons in a southern city they were convinced that i was in charge again and stayed where i put them 
the biggest bit of advice I got from the cats at Vicehar, and other people came forward and told me about similar jobs, because uh, Stephanie let me put it all up on social media, was to just throw out the idea that I knew what I was doing, that this was going to teach me what I had to do, and I'd better stay patient about it. So you brought me a, a six or seven pound viola um, in 38 pieces. Oh my. Oh wow. 38. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You laid them all out and it was like, yeah, Jerry schism took that great picture. It was like a, an exploded diagram of a viola. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. How is the merviola? Oh, it's good. Yeah. It's good. So it's gone through another couple of little glow ups. Yeah. You put a new bass bar in there and, uh, it's sounding really good. Great. Yeah. I mean, this is like the, the dark time for all violas like the winter you know they just don't like it and mine loves humidity go figure <laughs> yeah it's thirsty. yeah it's thirsty it remembers its days in the water right yeah <laughs> fondly making yeah. friends with the the little amoeba it sings part of your world on a regular basis right right <laughs> That was spit tea. It would be very British of me. A spit take yeah. tea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, anytime I can get a guest to spit beverage while they laugh is a, it's a good one. That might be a life goal for That's me real. in the podcast world. <laughs> yeah, but otherwise, it. I mean, it's sounding great. It's sounding great. Good. It's amazing that it's playable at all. I mean, I literally bought you a Tupperware of viola. And you... <laughs> it was in Tupperware, right? It was literally... Yeah, it was in a big old Tupperware. In a big old yeah. Tupperware. <laughs> And um, I said, get me the cat litter. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And you made a viola out of it again. And it's just, it's just a marvel. So that's a, a Heinel. It was made in either Sarasota or Niagara Falls. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. About a hundred years ago. And those are pretty rare, you know, as, as instruments go to have a, an American instrument of that quality from that time period. Mm -hmm. There were the Gamunders and a few people in Cincinnati and Philly, but, uh, what you have really is, it's an oddity, but it's also American royalty. Well, I'll t we'll take it. <laughs> I love it. It's got a beautiful sound. Thank you. A good instrument is, uh, I mean, it's, it's silly to make too many metaphors to humans, but you, you make a relationship with an instrument. You have to put up with some stuff, and then it has other stuff that's just for you, you know. So if you have that connection you're talking about, then uh, it, a luthier can bring it to be what you need. And of course, players want it all. They want it to project over the cannons, and they also want it to, to be able to play opera pianissimo and have it speak, articulate between strings. But uh, that's really the, the fun of the relationship between a violist and a luthier is that uh, once you have something you care about and you're worried about letting someone work on it, that's when you really need to, to take it to somebody to get it to its potential. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I feel like, too, what you said is so interesting because I generally defer to the relationship I have to the sound of the instrument first. And then if it's a little harder to play. Yeah, yeah, of course. Sometimes to my detriment, I've overlooked that. But that tone, <laughs> that tone. Yes, mm -hmm. but it's so rich and yet I have to work so hard. But I will say with my viola, I think it started there and then with work and with a good relationship with the luthier, it has become easier to play because we see different things we can do. And mm -hmm. I love that. It feels like a collaborative effort. It's fun. Yeah, it is. Well, speaking of collaboration, so Chris, you make instruments to order 
right? Yeah. Bespoke instruments. Yeah, I do. So how is that working with like, say, a violist who wants a certain sound? How do you come to uh, a decision on the design? How does that whole process work? It is much easier when you already have worked with them on their instrument, of course, mm. because you get to know what they're actually saying when they use vocabulary to describe what they're looking for. And what's frustrating to a player can sometimes be mechanical and they perceive it as sound. Mm -hmm. So if you've worked with a musician and you know that they're having trouble with the sound in a certain way that can be solved by changing the shape or the, the geometry of the neck and the bridge. That really makes you look like a star when you have that much input, you know? But I, I recently got to make a second viola for Nancy Thomas, who plays in the NSO. She's played one of my violas for five years, and against all odds, she wanted a bigger version of it. Yes. And violists... Who does that? She, I, <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. They always want a, a smaller instrument because it starts to hurt. Mm -hmm. She came to me and she said, I, I want a viola that the color of my horse with a C string stronger than God. Whoa. Oh my God, I love it. <laughs> That's poetry. I can't love that more. It's so good. And she was very, like, she had been thinking about how to, to tell me what she wanted. And I, 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 that made me so happy. And I, I knew the model well. I knew her instrument well. And I knew her as a player. So the steps needed to make it larger and give her the sound she wanted were pretty straightforward. And I ended up taking some very old, very low density spruce that was felled in the 19th century and doubling her instrument's top with it on the outside uh, so that the part of the top which was in contact with the acoustic machine was much softer and less dense and much older and lighter than the part which was supporting the sound post. And it seems to have paid off really well. It's got a, it's got a lovely, thick, dense, uh, low end, um, and it still speaks fairly fast. Oh, that's um, so cool. You're like speaking my viola language because <laughs> I play a tiny cello. That's what I yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's my thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. I got to, to see your instrument while, while Rob was working on it, and it, it's great. Yeah, it, we're, we're an all-American duo. I did not know that. I thought Stephanie's instrument was European, but Ooh. we both got American instruments. Nice. Mine's just a little newer, a little <laughs> more, a little infant. I was going to ask you, if there's anything unique or special for you about making violas as opposed to the other wonderful string instruments in the world. Oh, yeah. Ah, oh, they're a bunch of bums. <laughs> the, the viola's the best. The viola came first. So viola means viola. Violin means little viola. Violoncello means little version of a big viola. Ah. <laughs> I didn't know this. You heard it here. You need the cello because it's most like the man's rich baritone. You need the violin. It's most like the mezzo up to soprano. Um, and the viola was the bass from which these were formed. And then those, those tone-specific instruments became very strictured in what size they had to be, what air volume, what widths, in order to achieve what a human rib cage and diaphragm in its size, widths, and, and stuff, could be matched to. So the violin is, when we talk about, oh, that's a big violin, it's like four millimeters bigger than, <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's less than a quarter inch. 
than a small violin. Mm -hmm. And violas are, are free. Violas are all over the place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially since I always thought that the proportions of the violin are such that in proportion to the player are just right for projecting that, you know, that type of sound and the cello is the same. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that the viola, just because it's kind of just an in-between instrument, yeah. that it's hard to get that proportion right. And the, the viola was originally almost 19 inches. Mm -hmm. So at the National Music Museum in South Dakota, which is one of my favorite places to go, they have an uncut tenore viola by Andrea Guarneri, who was the, the Del Gesu family learned from the Guarneris. And they have an uncut tenore viola by Jacobus Steiner, who was an opsom in, in the Alps. And at that time, this was a million miles apart. Two very different schools, and they are almost precisely the same size in the way that the violins are almost precisely the same size now. But your viola and your viola, Liz, the Kernosiak, are more or less copies of what works when you cut a big viola down. Hmm. Oh. And both of your violas, yours is made after the work, uh, Stephanie, of uh, Gaspar Bertolotti from Salo, Da Salo. Mm. Uh, that's in Brescia, pretty close to Cremona. And his instruments all started out between 18 and 20 inches long. And I'm guessing that yours, and I'm going to take a a mean email from Stanley now. Um, I'm guessing yours is, Liz, is either an Andrea Guarneri cut down or is after the work of Phileas Andreas, who was Andrea Guarneri's son. Wow, that's really interesting. I'm learning so much right now. I love it. <laughs> I always feel really dorky and a little guilty after I spout this stuff. So thank you for telling me it's interesting. No, it's uh, super interesting. Yeah. In viola-centric language, we talk about this idea of accessing inner voices. Mm -hmm. And so I would imagine, much like any sort of craft where you're, you know, you're doing meticulous work with your hands, that there's a fair amount of like introspectiveness that goes on with that while you're, while you're in the middle of the work. Uh -huh. The introspection, yeah. A lot of the work I do, I'm trying to find a way to dissociate myself from my hands and let my hands know what they're doing for 20 years, mm. rather than letting my, my brain put its thumb in things. But uh, there are certain steps and certain things where I have to be completely focused and able to reach down with, with, uh, with my inner voice and, and make good calls. A lot of that is planning how to go about a repair or varnish work. A lot of varnish work is just getting something to a point where the eye doesn't find that the base fell through the top of the instrument and I've put it back together. Mm. So when I'm doing hand work, I listen to music and audiobooks. And when I'm doing introspective work, I can't ignore lyrics to some extent yeah. and it will throw me completely. I, I can't. So uh, I actually take a day off work at Potter's on Thursdays and I help with the kids schooling at home because it's way too much to leave on my wife alone you know and she's doing it anyway and then on Mondays I go in and I don't turn the lights on I just open the shades in in the workshop and I get to do that introspective work uh, without people calling without doing curbside and there's something uh, I've been thinking a lot about lately I've been calling it slow time and I think that's what you guys are talking about is being able to access 
the thing which is completely gone from our lives as working adults with relationships, with anxiety, with, uh, you know, diets and all this bullshit we do to ourselves, <laughs> you know. Yep. And that's to be able to access the sort of wonder that I used to feel when I would sit in front of a bookshelf of mine and search something out that was going to take me somewhere rather than looking up whether it was true on Google, rather than getting right to the answer. But uh, that introspection for me is is wandering through what it's going to take for me to do what I can to show the instrument the respect it needs while making a profit because I'm working for a company, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Because when you're taking in information, like even if you're listening to a podcast or listening to a an audio book or something, it's almost impossible to hear yourself. Yeah. I had a weird, like dark period of violin making when I was listening to Cormac McCarthy's novels. And I didn't realize that it was making me angry and sad. So I was just like breaking stuff and <laughs> being mad all day while I was making instruments. And uh, uh, <laughs> I didn't think that what I took into my body, you know, hourly, sonically would, would affect me. And it, it everything yeah. does. The road is not a good companion for <laughs> oh jeez <laughs> for making a happy instrument. No, that's one of his cheerful novels. I know. That's really interesting to think about that the that what we take in comes out in our work. Yeah. You know, whatever that might look like. Yeah. And that's certainly true in musical expression. If you're pl- if you're the one playing the instrument, depending on how you're feeling in any given moment, that can come out in the music. But the fact that it could actually go into the instrument as well you know the making of the instrument that's really that is deep i i get a little woo woo about it we're all about woo woo man yeah (laughs) i i believe that they they soak these things up i mean these are these are cellular structures which we're imbuing with with our love with our frustration with that with the the sounds we bring out of it and there's something about if, if you intend to play Western music with a strict eight note scale, if you play that instrument in tune, it will learn to be played in tune and it will sound better when it's played in tune. Mm. Um, so if I'm building an instrument while I'm all out of tune, like I, I don't know what it's going to do when I string it up. That's so interesting. I mean, it's going to make music, but maybe people will hate it. <laughs> yeah. Well, wood, wood is a, a living, breathing uh, material. And it changes with the weather. And yeah, I love that. Should read books to your viola now. I was thinking about that. I'm gonna put some headphones just on its upper bouts, and then and then put inspirational, like Tony Robbins. Yes, <laughs> yes, like self help. You can do it. It's this is opening up a whole can of like. How do you make money from this? Yeah, <laughs> instrument therapy. <laughs> <laughs> hey people sell cds for babies like baby einstein that's right yeah it's the next thing is is music for your instruments <laughs> viola einstein tm it's over it's trademarked <laughs> it's ours you've mentioned this before chris today the the relationship between the instrument and the musician and how if you're in a state of tension what that actually does to the instrument itself yeah. that's kind of something that i i have to circulate in my mind a little bit because my relationship with my instrument has changed drastically in this time. Really? And yeah, for the better, because I I had to realize that it wasn't about getting the orchestra jobs and sitting with all my colleagues on stage 
that's not the root of my relationship with music. Actually, the root of my relationship with music is what I have with my instrument and how that has been the vehicle for me to do all of these other things creatively, but that the creativity and and the expression and the introspection is all there, even if I'm doing it by myself. It's been interesting for me to feel like the sound is, it's different now. Yeah. It's more open. Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> that part of it has been great. That's nice. We've all been reassessing our relationships and, and looking at what the rules are as we've been trapped inside for 10, 11 months now. Mm-hmm. So it's awesome that you're doing that with, I mean, that's an important relationship with your viola. Yeah. I never play music for myself. And I think about it sometimes. And the chance to like even go off and try something before I deliver it. I'm doing it in the building at Potter's. And I know that all of my coworkers are listening and going, oh, that shit. It sounds terrible. (laughs) That's, you know, this, I'm not really down on myself, but it's that, it's that same thing, like the, the imposter syndrome. So I need to go reconnect with my violin and and sit somewhere and, and play it for a bit. That sounds nice. Yeah. It's been really good. And it has, I hope it stays this way. It's changed my perspective of that of the imposter syndrome thing and just kind of reframed it to think about how every single one of us has our own unique relationship with the instrument we play Mm -hmm. and every single one of us has something special to say through that relationship and everybody's going to be different so I'm I'm really doing a lot of work to take that imposter syndrome stuff out of my own out of my self-perception and also out of the perception I have for my colleagues, you know, just kind of changing that mindset, so to speak. Who knows how, who knows how it'll go when we all go back. I think it'd be easy to fall back in. Do we but... get to go back? <laughs> Can we go back, please? God willing, we're going to have some <laughs> orchestra concerts, like actual orchestra concerts in the next year, yeah. 2021 sometime, maybe. Yeah. The internet has changed this industry and all industries to the point where we have a much better feel of uh, if my neighbors grow good apples, then I'll grow good apples. Let's share and improve together. Mm. The world is too small now. It's just too small. So you have to be on board with everyone else to the extent that you, you know, you, you protect yourself and feeding your family but uh that it's much more open and that allows better setup for things like violas and and upright basses where nobody wrote the book that makes any sense you just said such a huge thing that i know you were relating it to your specific field of work but it's true i think it's true for us as musicians and maybe even just culturally that collaboration is so much more beneficial to everyone than trying to corner the market and isolate other people out of it you know and in music I've been thinking a lot about this as as a freelance professional and what that means for us going forward for our well-being in that industry and whether or not we had healthy perspectives on the way we worked yeah. in our industry before this. So I, I'm starting to do a lot of work in my head about that. So this is just very, very interesting. Have you seen positive benefits reaped as a result of being more collaborative, being more open? Definitely, yeah. I mean, I, I think that my industry, 
well, I'm about to put my foot in my mouth, but uh, it's much further behind than a lot of other industries because it's such an atavistic thing. It's such a throwback. Mm -hmm. But even my heroes who are 20 years younger than me and happen to be women who work in the field weren't allowed to build cellos because women couldn't handle it. In the 70s and 80s, you know, and st stuff like that. So, I mean, just as an angle on how much things have changed, uh, the merit of somebody's work is what they're taken for, for the most part. And the level of instrument making since I started 20 years ago is terrifyingly high mm. because of this smaller world of collaboration. When I first made an instrument, it's something I like to try and do every year, make an instrument by mail with one of my close friends, that uh that also likes to build instruments we just got a bunch of cracks like oh you guys getting hitched only only married people work together <laughs> what are you gonna tell them how you do stuff <laughs> the more you do that and uh and become neuroplastic become flexible become able to not only take in what works for someone else but reinstill a sense of wonder in yourself about what you're doing so it's not just drudgery i mean i it really i got a big grin when you talked about reconnecting with your instrument and rediscovering why you know you, we should do that every day we should and whatever we're doing and instead there's diapers and sirens and a man in a Chewbacca bikini in the Capitol building. And, <laughs> and so, the, yeah, there's been so much, uh, so much benefit from it. And probably the biggest benefit for me is it keeps me from forming hard prejudices about what works and what doesn't. And it keeps me from slipping into a place where I let my interaction with the instrument or the musician become just another byline to making enough money or getting through the day mm. yes mm. absolutely it's so good it's powerful yeah <laughs> it's just great it reminded me too that what you do for a living literally you create art for it's a living pretty great it's amazing this is awesome this has been amazing i know i'm so glad that you were able to join us thanks for inviting me yeah it's been a blast yeah that's that's really fun Thank you so much for listening to the Viola-centric podcast. If you enjoy what you're hearing and would like to support us, please consider a contribution through the PayPal or Venmo links in our episode notes. Once again, I'm Liz O'Hara Starr. And I'm Stephanie Knudsen. We release new episodes every other Monday, so please subscribe so you don't miss one. In the meantime, connect with us on Facebook and on Instagram and email us at violacentric at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening.